little bit of in-house stuff. G'day, just by the way, my name's John and uh, I'm the pastor here at Outlook Christian Church. That's my privilege to serve in that way and uh, we have a great team of partners here involved in ministry and this afternoon we're kicking off, as was mentioned before, uh, Discovering Outlook. So if you're new or you're interested in finding out more about the church that's starting this afternoon, if you want to get involved in ministry or become part of the team here, uh, then can I encourage you to come along? Just let me know um, after the service so I can run off enough sheets so that we've all got the material that we need for it goes over three Sunday afternoons. Uh, but we'll kick off this afternoon at 3 p.m. But do catch me afterwards. The other thing, if we could have that video, play, uh, that um, PowerPoint, please. The other thing I just want to uh, remind us as partners, part of Vision Dinner at the end of last year, our focus is mission this year. And uh, but part of that is prayer, and uh, we uh, I just want to encourage you what we sort of committed to to do this year, and what we've added in the area of prayer. Um, our uh, key words are words, spirit, mission, and our desire is this year to have the Father's heart for all of creation alienated from him and to live in such a way that all things come under his reign. And how are we going to implement that is, well, we want to undergird everything we do here at Outlook uh, with prayer. And uh, so we want to pray, pray, and pray again. We've already had our first uh, prayer Sunday here, and uh, unfortunately I wasn't able to be here. I was overseas, but it was a great time, and Rebecca led that for us, and all the kids were involved, and uh, thank you for participating in that. But the other thing is individually we we'll encourage each of us as partners here at Outlook to pray. And uh, though you may have your own system of prayer and when you pray and what you pray for, uh, we're encouraging you to pray some for on Mondays for your mission in work because uh, this year we want to focus on our workplace and praying for our workplace. And uh, after Easter we'll be studying in May, studying a series on gospel-shaped work. And uh, we'll be looking at that. So we want on Mondays to pray for your work. Then on Wednesdays, we want you to pray for someone in your spiritual family. So uh, talk to somebody this morning over coffee. If you don't know their name, do what I have to do just about every day. Sorry, I've forgotten your name again. Good to again. It's a bit thick, you know. Uh, but get one person's name and you may want to ask them, what could I pray for you? What could I pray for for you this week? All right and try and remember it or write it down, all right? So on Wednesdays, and uh, we hopefully will have a church app. What we were doing last year didn't quite work, so it's been changed. We're going to have a church app. You'll have a church directory, so you'll regularly go through that and pray for the next person on it. But at the moment, find somebody, and uh, this Wednesday, pray for them. We'll tell you what. And then on Fridays, we're praying for people far from God. All right, so that's the focus. So on Mondays, you're praying for your mission in work. For lordship, that I might do my regular work every day as for Jesus. Secondly, that I might see my work as a creative trust from God, that it's a spiritual thing, and that I might be an influence for good and for God in my workplace. So three things in the area of your work on Monday. So pray for your work. On Wednesday, you're praying for your spiritual family. So as well as what you've asked them, what they, you can pray for them, pray for their worship, that they would spend time in God's word and prayer personally, and that they would be encouraged to come and meet with his people corporately together on Sunday. For their witness, that they might be a witness in their life and through their words, and for their well-being in their relationships, in their finances, in their health, and other things about that they might have shared something specifically you can pray for them, for your spiritual family. Then on Fridays... 
Pray for your friends far from God. Pray for openness to the gospel, that they would be interested in knowing more about Jesus. Pray for opportunities to talk about Jesus with them and then pray that they will come to a place where they'll commit their life to Jesus. So specifically praying for people that you know who don't know Jesus yet, that they will come to faith in Jesus. So Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays to add to whatever else you are doing in the area of prayer. And then on Sunday mornings, um, if uh, you're here at 10 past nine, join the prayer circle just over there. We get together for five minutes to just ask God's blessing upon our corporate time together in worship. So uh, if you're able to do that, that would be awesome. So let's pray. Father God, we do thank you that you have come in Jesus to seek and to save the lost. And that's why we're here. You died on the cross in our place and you rose from the dead so that you could come and live in us by your Holy Spirit. And we're so grateful that you've forgiven us our sins and given us the gift of your Holy Spirit, the gift of eternal life. And we've come together today to worship and honor you as our great God and Savior. And Father, we will pray that as a church that we would become all that you have planned for us to be that we would reflect our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, as we continue in this topic of Jesus the Game Changer with other churches around the nation, we pray that you'll help us to see just the difference you have made, not only in our lives personally, but in our culture. And we'll be encouraged and strengthened to continue to live for you. So speak to us this morning, Lord, and encourage us. And whatever is said, may we hear your still small voice. And may we respond in faith and obedience. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As a church, we're doing Jesus the Game Changer series. There is a DVD small group part of it, and we're doing that Saturday night at the Bowls Club up the road where we can invite friends to come along to and see what Jesus taught and how it's changed the world. And uh, then on Sunday mornings, we're picking up a bit of a summary of that topic and, and just adding a bit more to it in the, uh, in the talk time. So we're going to watch an intro video on care. The topic this time is care. Thank you. clips we're introducing the topics of the series Jesus the Game Changer and in this video we're looking at the topic of care that Jesus changed the game in how we care for people and one of the ways of understanding the difference that Jesus made was to try and understand what the Greco-Roman world was like it wasn't a place where care was a normal usual part of the community in fact it was a pretty brutal environment I mean one way to think about that is to consider the gladiatorial events in the Colosseum. Now, we love the movie Gladiator. We love the whole picture of, of what that was like. It makes, makes exciting viewing, but think about it. Here is a class of people whose sole job it is, is to wander into an arena and fight others to death. And that was entertainment. And nobody thought, is this a good idea? 
<laughs> it was it was just what people accepted. And and and, and the sense that it was an uncaring environment. A, a couple of people who have thought about that, uh, an Australian professor Edward Judge from Macquarie University has written about those times and he said uh, these words is reflected on those times. He said classical philosophers regarded mercy and pity as pathological emotions, defects of character, to be avoided by all rational men. Not a particularly positive picture. It's a guy called Tom Holland, who's a writer and a presenter of documentaries for the BBC, an ancient historian who focused on the Greco-Roman world in his writing. And just recently, in 2016, he wrote an article which was why I changed my mind about Christianity. Now, I don't think Holland is saying I've become a Christian. He's saying I've changed my mind about Christianity. And one of the reasons he changed his mind is he thought more clearly about what the Greco-Roman world was like. And he actually writes this in the article. It was not just the extremes of callousness that I came to find shocking but the lack of any sense that the poor or weak might have any intrinsic value. What Holland went on to see was he wasn't framed up by the Greco-Roman world and he wasn't framed up by the French and Italian Enlightenment thinkers. Here's what he wrote himself. Today, even as belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were once collectively known as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of the two millennia old revolution that Christianity represents. In my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I am not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. Holland changed his views on Christianity because of the way the church cared, because of the game change the church made in caring for people. So what created that change? Well, one of the places to look for that change is found in Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus tells a story. And it's a story, a parable about what would happen at the end of time. If you can imagine a picture where all these people are spread out in front of God, who is the judge, and, and he's judging the people who are on his right, who he refers to as the sheep, against those on his left, who he refers to as the goats. And it's the sheep on his right that are going to go into his eternal kingdom. But listen to what he's, the, the, the judge says, God says about those who are on his right. He, he says these words, "'Come you who are blessed by my Father, "'take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you "'since the creation of the world. "'For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. "'I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. "'I was a stranger you invited me in. "'I needed clothes and you clothed me. "'I was sick and you looked after me. "'I was in prison and you came to visit me.'" And what happens next is that those who are about to go into the eternal glory with their heavenly Father turn back and say, when exactly did we see you thirsty or hungry or poor and in prison? Because we don't remember and we think we would have remembered if we'd done that. Then the king uses words that would change the world. He said, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. And the followers of Jesus in the early church, whenever something happened within the community, remembered that they followed somebody who said, when you serve people, the neediest, the lowliest, the poor, those who are sick, those in prison, those who are hungry, you serve me. 
And a couple of key events happened in 165 AD and 251 AD when there were plagues across the Roman Empire. And, and it was thought that between 20 and 30% of people died in those plagues. In the towns when the plagues hit, the pagan priests left, those in power left, those who had any ability to get out of town did. Who stayed? The followers of Jesus stayed. Because they remembered they followed someone who said, whatever you do to the least of these. And that changed the world. The church started setting up hospitals, it started caring for people, and it became the culture of the community, not because that's what it was, but it's because what Jesus taught, what his followers did, and that got changed the game. In fact, in the early 19th century, in 1815, a lady called Mary Aikenhead started a small group, a, a religious order for women, called the Sisters of Charity, specifically for serving the poor. A bishop in Sydney asked five of them to come out, and they did at great expense to Mary Aikenhead. They started serving people in Sydney from 1838. And then later in the 19th century, there was an influenza epidemic in Sydney. There was not a place for the poor to go. So the, those five nuns from the Sisters of Charity in Sydney decided to do what Mary Aikenhead did, and that was to start a hospital. And they bought a building in Potts Point, and they started a hospital, and they called it St. Vincent's. And the Sisters of Charity still run St. Vincent's Hospital today. And they still follow that same concept taught by Jesus. Whatever you did to the least of these, you did for me. It was an idea that changed the world. We take it for granted, don't we? In our Western society, we don't realize just how much impact the message of the gospel has had, the life of Jesus has had on our society nowadays that even the government is pressurized to care uh, for children and orphans and, and set up foster care and uh, provide hospitals and uh, provide money for when people are out of work. But in our society in the West, before Christianity, that's not what happened. As was stone, if you study history, that's not what it was like. And to have pity or to care for the poor or those in need or those in trouble was seen as something that was weak. It was not part of strong character. Uh, and yet when Jesus came, this whole idea came. And that was care. So I wanted to look at care today because belief affects behavior. And I don't think we have realized just how much belief affects behavior. I know my parents were missionaries in Papua New Guinea and my grandparents were missionaries in India for many years. And uh, I remember growing up as a teenager and uh, people who were studying at universities and uh, uh, would have a go at me that sort of my parents were part of wrecking perfect cultures and that you missionaries had gone in and, and destroyed their culture. And I was thinking... But if you actually lived there and knew what their culture was like, you're now seeing it after the impact and the changes that have come. But if you talk to people in Fiji, we go for lovely holidays, but talk about them when they were worshipping evil spirits. Go to Papua New Guinea, listen to what their stories were. As I shared once before, my dad was sitting down and they were talking about the hardness of their souls underneath and one old fella said, yes, yeah, Yes, but the flesh underneath is very sweet because they used to be cannibals. 
or how they would treat their women. We were looking at this last week before they became Christians. I would buy my wife or however many wives I wanted with a certain number of pigs and I would negotiate with your dad just how many pigs that would be if I wanted to marry you. And then, uh, then I would build a house over here and I'd divide the house in half because my pigs are just as important and half that little house which stood about this high was for my pigs and the other half was for you, my wife. You wouldn't live with me and then you would have the children and you would look after the children. And we were just talking about it last night and Stanley, who, whose parents were also in Papua New Guinea, talks about a story in the tribe that they were working with and that when they had twins, they saw it as the, the, we must have done something to um, get the spirits angry and so we would have to kill the twins because something is wrong here. And so we would take them out and kill them. And uh, when the gospel came, that they changed their attitude uh, to children and especially to twins and didn't kill them and uh, he talks about his dad going back and seeing one of these girls who was a twin who was still alive thanks to the change that the gospel had made that we cared for the vulnerable and uh, even our missionaries that we support in Thailand the Collinses are now setting up you know uh, places for those who are orphaned or, or have particular developmental problems and for um, little Maxwell in Peru, the same sort of thing, setting up an orphanage there. You see, what we believe affects our behavior. And so I want to talk about the Christian belief and why that is so. Well, first of all, it's because we believe in creation. You see, we believe that we are created in the image of God. And therefore, each person has intrinsic value. They are not some random accident that's happened in the universe. They're not somebody who is just uh, outworking their life, uh, controlled by their DNA that came from somewhere or some explosion. Because the Bible says that God created mankind in his own image to reflect his personality and his character. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. And so our fundamental belief as Christians that every person bears the stamp of his creator. And that's why you see around the world, every often sparks of this in heroism and kindness and care and reflecting the creator's love because each one of us is created in the image of God. And so we're not saying today that those who are not following Jesus don't love or don't care. Because we're all created in the image of God and that's why we do care. And I would encourage you in sharing your faith very often, don't get into arguments to defend Christianity, but challenge the people you're talking to to think through their belief. Well, what does that mean? How does that work out? For example, my parents worked in, my grandparents worked in India, lived there, died there, buried there. And they believe in reincarnation. 
So if you really live out that belief, if you really believe, and in the West we've sort of tried to pick up some of it and sort of massage it, but push people. You believe in reincarnation, do you? All right, let's do it through. So you come back to work out your karma, is it? Because if you've done something bad in your last life, you come back in a different form or either higher or lower in the caste system, if you're a true Hindu, uh, or you come back in a different form and you have to work out your karma. So that belief works out in practice. So if you're suffering over here, why should I... I don't care for you because you've got to work out your karma. You've got to pay off your debt. You did something terrible in your last life. So I can't stop you or I shouldn't. Otherwise, how will you get to a better life to become like me, a Brahmin at the top of society who's got everything and you're suffering and you're poor? Because if that's your belief system, so that it works out in practice. So hospitals and education didn't come out of that particular belief system. What we take for granted, hospitals and education, things like that, and caring for the poor and needy and the marginal, came out of the teaching and the belief system of Christianity. We now take it for granted and we want all the morals and the goodness of what Christianity has brought, but we just don't want the Christ. And our Western societies, you might say, is reverting back to where it came from. And as it's going back there, it's wanting to separate Christ from the benefits that he's brought. So we still want education and people to be able to have a good mind to get out of poverty. We, we still think it's important to care for the needy and the lost, but that's not where society came from. Our society in the West came from. As was quickly mentioned on the DVD, let me read it to you. The early church became leaders in caring for those in their culture who were in need, not just for those who were part of their church gathering, but any who were in need. This became a point of great contention for leaders like Julian the Apostate. Julian was the Roman emperor in AD 361 after Constantine. Unlike Constantine, Julian was no friend of the church and no believer in the Christian faith. He wanted to return Rome to its pagan roots and pagan past. One of his great calls to the pagan priests was they should go out and serve the poor like the Christians church was at the time. Julian remarked that the Christians were not only serving their own poor, but they were serving the pagan poor, and they were making the rest of the community look bad. Julian wanted to help the pagan religion to regain its place in society, and one way of succeeding would be to start serving the poor like the Christians. You see, belief, and it didn't happen because of their belief system, belief impacts behavior. So we believe that we are created in the image of God and every human being has the stamp of the creator. They are created in the image of God so they have intrinsic worth. Not by what they do or not by where they're born, not by the color of their skin, not by anything else but because they are created in the image of God. But we also believe that a catastrophe has happened. This is the Christian worldview. We call it the fall when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And that has had an impact. We call it sin. It began as a spiritual thing, but it's had physical impact, not only on our lives and our relationships with God, but with one another. And not only that, but our whole environment. Weeds and disease and suffering has come about because of 
corruption because of rebellion against the Creator, because this creation was created by God to live in harmony with its Creator and to reflect His character and to fulfill His purposes. But sin and rebellion has destroyed that. Therefore, Romans says, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death has come to all people because all have sinned. And so we, on one hand, we believe that we're created in the image of God with great dignity. But on the other hand, we are rebels and we can descend to the greatest of depravity. And that's why people very often, you know, even the news, when you how can that person do that? How can they go out and punch their wife to death? How can that happen? And we're trying to look at all different ways. Some things, you know, maybe it's society and blame everybody. But the Bible teaches we're, we're sinners. <laughs> we're depraved. There, there has been a corruption of what God made. It, it's not how God intended it to be. And it's impacted every area of life. We're not only separated from God, but we're separated from one another. And we're separated from, uh, you know, our environment. And these are great moves to try and get back to Eden and, you know, get out of the environment. But it's infected. That's why as I try to get the back of my little place, uh, having more native trees, I've got to go and weed out all this coral berry that's taking over it. It's part of the fall. It's part of the curse that this rebellious world is living under. That's part of the Christian worldview. But going on from that, as we heard with the kids, the God has come to rescue and bring it back. There is a rescue in place. And that has come in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, God come in the flesh. And he came, and his ultimate purpose was to go to the cross. And he said this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I'm sorry that that's dropping off the bottom there. And so Jesus has come. And so this is the Christian worldview. We're created in the image of God, but this, this has been corrupted with the great catastrophe of the fall and sinners entered into the world. But God is doing something about that. He had a plan. And he taught people way back, right back from the beginning, through the, the sacrifice of the lamb, that someone would die in your place. The only way to be restored and come back into relationship with God and the only way that that would then restore other relationships if we trusted this someone else died in our place. And ultimately that was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that brought about a restoration. First of all, a personal restoration when I put my faith and trust in Jesus and I come back into relationship with him. But we also look forward to, as the Bible teaches, the great restoration, when all of creation will be restored. You see, the spiritual impacts the physical and vice versa. And the work of Christ, and you see him on work, he, he says, I am the light of the world. And then he heals somebody, gives them physical sight. I am the bread of life. I can provide what you really need to be satisfied and then he feeds them the 5,000. I am the resurrection and the life. 
and he raises Lazarus from the dead. The physical and the spiritual are intertwined. And when I become a Christian, I receive the down payment, the deposit, the guarantee, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and I'm changed on the inside. I'm personally restored into relationship with God. But ultimately, this body that's been affected by sin, that's dying, and just like my father at 101 a few weeks ago passed away and is with Jesus. Now, one day he too will receive a resurrection body, a body that will no longer be diseased, a body that will no longer die. But in this interregnum, in this intermediate period of the first coming of Christ and this restoration program and the ultimate restoration, we're doing what Jesus did. Get right with God, but help the physical. Help people in need. Care for people. The impact and the effects of sin are being restored. Ultimately, it will on the physical side, but it starts with the spiritual. Both go together. And so wherever the gospel has gone, like my parents not only told people about Jesus at Te Popo, on the Fly River, but also ran a dispensary and a hospital and uh, started education. And so much so that my mother said when we first came here, our Papua and friends used to paddle us in canoes, and when we left to retirement, they were flying us in aeroplanes. And, uh, and some of the things they did were pretty horrific. I mean, I remember Dad pulling a tooth for poor old Piru, who was, he was one of the chiefs at Tari, and he came to know Jesus. He also walked with a limp, and he had a big lump on his leg because he never could get the arrow out when he was after had a fight and had an arrow in his leg, and he always walked with a limp, dear old Piru. But he came to know Jesus, and uh, he'd been so transformed that he, he actually went. He said, I want to go across those mountain ranges to a tribe I used to go and fight with and kill their warriors, and he wanted to go back and tell them about Jesus. He survived. He went and told them about Jesus. But remember, he had a bad tooth. And Dad had these, I think they're dentist pliers, but we had no anaesthetic. And uh, he wanted this bad tooth pulled out. And so Dad's, you know, I, I watched him as a little kid, you know, with these pair of special pliers, but just like a pair of pliers, yanking this tooth out. And the guy got it, oh, thank you, thank you. Next day he comes back and says, oh, wrong one, it was this one. Because <laughs> the, <pain, laughs> the pain was on the wrong side and going, oh but helping and care for them in their need. The re great restoration has begun. And it's had impact in two ways. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest command. The second is like this, Love your neighbor as a yourself. And then he went on in Matthew 5 to say, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so we see in the early church and now, not just caring for one another in the family of God, that's what we're commanded to do, that's what we should do, but also even caring for our enemies because this restoration has changed us so that we not only love God, but we love our neighbor. And you know the story that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan, those who knew this guy or were in the same social uh, in the same society as this guy, walked past this guy who'd been robbed and beaten to death. And his enemy was coming past. The Samaritan, the enemy, was coming past. It was the enemy who helped him. 
And so Jesus turns it around and he is the one who's come to rescue us. You see, we tend to think that when Jesus came to save us and we read that God so loved the world that we must be lovely. But it was while we were still his enemies, he's the good Samaritan who's come to bind our wounds and heal our brokenness and rescue us. Here's the good Samaritan that's put us on the donkey and taken us and cared for us. Because you see, we, we were not lovable. We were not his friends. We were his enemies and we were rebels. And yet he came and died and sacrificed himself to make it possible for us to be restored into relationship. And because he first loved us, we also, as the Bible said, should love one another. And so if this Christ who has begun this great restoration has begun that restoration in me by forgiving my sin and giving me the gift of the Holy Spirit, that is Christ comes to dwell in me, then the result is that Christ now wants to live his life through me. What he's done for me, he wants to do through me. And so that's why we care. Now, Peter says it this way, now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Why? Because you've been born again. You've experienced this new birth, this restoration into relationship with God. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. You've experienced the life of God coming into you. And therefore, you are now his hands and his body and his feet in this world. Well, the verse that I shared that really summed up my father's life and why he went to Papua New Guinea to work amongst the Huli people. He said, if we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So why do Christians, whenever they go into a society, begin to care? Because belief affects behavior. And why does our society now think that's normal and we should do that? Because the Christian belief has impacted the West. I know that impact is sliding at the moment. But in societies where Christ has not been dominant or the Christian faith has not been dominant, there has not been the same idea of caring for those who can't care for themselves. And why? Because we believe everybody is created in the image of God. They have intrinsic worth. We believe we live in a fallen world and that's why there's suffering and hatred and depravity. But God has come to rescue and begin a restoration process. It can begin in me. It can begin in you if you surrender your life to him and trust his death on the cross for you and invite him by his spirit to come into your life. And if you experience that restoration in you, you want to restore others to that relationship. You want others to experience that love and to be pulled out of the impact and the effects of sin and corruption in our world. And to begin to know this restoration. And as Christians, we look forward to the great restoration 
when the Bible says there'll be no more sin and no more death and no more suffering, when we'll have new bodies that will not disintegrate and die, the impact of sin will be finally and ultimately overcome. That's why we care. And a little correction before we finish. Because the church was caring for people. And it's possible if that is happening that we can feel, well, well, I'll just sit back and be cared for. <laughs> and everybody can do the work. So there's a little caring. Caring for need, not for laziness. Paul in Thessalonians writes to the church, for even when we were with you, he says, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. So they're not sort of saying, oh, well, because we care, you know, I'm a Christian now, I don't need to work, you know, the church will look after me. No, he's saying if you're not willing to work, you shouldn't have the benefit of having something to eat and uh, and that's why the christian churches when they've looked at revivals if you look at the wesleyan revival under methodism in england they talk about redemption and lift the people who were poor suddenly came to know jesus and there was a change in their attitude so instead of spending money on grog and uh, gambling they would start to spend it on their family and they would start to save and invest and so their economic things because their belief system and what was important changed and you can read the history of revivals and how it's impacted just read what happened uh, under Wesley and the Methodist Reformation or just read what happened in Wales in the Welsh revival I don't know whether you've read some of these stories it's fascinating let me do it. I know I've gone a bit of time just let me tell you the story in the Welsh revival when the church prayed Things were getting pretty bad and people just started to pray and God started to just move and people come to faith in Christ and people would just turn up to church to pray and seek God's forgiveness and some, just some exciting things happened. A lot of people were miners in these mines and they used to have donkeys that would pull the carts of coal out of the coal mines under the ground before they had machinery. And these men were pretty hardened men, miners. I worked in Blackwater in the coal mine area, so I know what they're like. And, uh, and so they would swear, like, pretty well. When these guys became Christians, it was said that they had to retrain their donkeys because they could no longer understand them because they stopped swearing. And so all the donkeys in the mines had to be retrained what to do because the guys' lives had been transformed by this, world, what they call the Welsh, Great Welsh Revival. And judges were even given white gloves because in their jurisdiction they had had no crimes to convict in the last month and they were given white gloves. This has happened in our society. We don't realize just the impact Christianity has had in our society over the years and uh, when God has moved in powerful ways. And so, yes, there is a correction. And uh, even amongst widows, we're saying if you're able to look after them, we'll continue to do that so that the church can help those widows who are really in need before there was any social security around. The church would do that and care for that. And the church is doing that around the world even now where it's not a society that's been impacted by Christianity. And so in summing up, as we looked at in the series on 1 Peter, this is the challenge and inspiration. It is by the loveliness of our daily life and conduct that we commend Christianity to those who still do not believe. We love why? Not because we're good or better or anything like that, but because He first loved us. 
And he loved me when I was still his enemy, when I still didn't care about him. And he transformed me and he helps me and he guides me and he provides for me. And because he's done that and is doing that in me, then the outworking is I want others to experience that too. And so we care for others. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for what you've done in us and we pray that it will flow out to those that we meet this week. Maybe they actually have everything, humanly speaking, but help us to be able to care for them. May you reveal to us what their real need is. Lord, may we be your hands and your feet this week. And may the love of Jesus be seen in us, in our words, in our reactions, in our help, in our care. And may people be drawn to this Jesus who came not when we'd got it together, but who came while we were still his enemies to rescue us. So help us to be part of his rescue plan in this city, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Check out the weekly email this week because there's a practical way we can help somebody in this church on Easter Monday. The details will be in the weekly email to do that. Thank you. Okay, we're going to close our service with our final song. As we do, the offering buckets are going to come around. If you're not a regular attender here, please.